0: open God's Word now in Titus chapter 3, the book of Titus chapter 3. In Covenant of Grace, I've been preaching a series of sermons through the book of Titus. The sermon I'll preach here this morning is the one I preached last Sunday morning. And I'd just like to say by way of introduction to our reading that in chapter 3, Paul is reminding Titus to remind the Christians on Crete of their calling as citizens, their calling as Christians within the public life of Crete. And their calling to live toward their fellow men and women in a way that reflects God and Jesus to their neighbor in such a way that those around them will understand that the Christians of Crete do not see themselves as different because of anything in themselves, but they see them, but they understand that they have received God's grace, are being preserved by His power, and are being brought toward the hope that he has laid up for them according to his mercy. So in Titus 3, the apostle says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, To be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior." that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God may be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me, salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. We read God's word this morning thus far. Our text is verses 4 through 8 of Titus 3. So I ask you to keep your Bibles open because we'll be referring to those verses frequently throughout the sermon. Our text begins, beloved, with a striking double contrast and that contrast, first of all, is over against man's inhumanity to man, as it's laid out in verse 3, where Paul says, We ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And then in verse 4, at the beginning of our text, the contrast, But after that the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. Over against man's inhumanity to man, God's goodness and love appears in brilliant colors. And then the second part of that contrast is that upon the deep darkness of our own past, the brightness of God's love and goodness appeared Upon the deep darkness of our own depravity, our Father's kindness and pity dawns. This contrast, you understand, beloved, is more than a mere argument. If you want to explain what the gospel means to someone, if you have an opportunity to do that, Titus 3, verses 4 through 8 is a wonderful passage to answer the question, what is the gospel? What is the good news of the Christian faith? What is the good news of salvation from God, through Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, as taught in Scripture, to God's glory alone. This is a marvelous explanation of the gospel. But you understand it is more than a mere argument. This is the response of a believing heart that is electrified by the love of God toward it. This is Paul's own confession as a child of God as one who, to whom the grace and goodness and love of God has appeared. And this is the confession that every believer can make. It is a gospel testimony from a believer's heart. Paul writes to Titus and to the Christians on Crete as, a, as one who has experienced what he is talking about. As one for whom these realities are not abstract but personal. Hence, these words about the kindness of God our Savior and His love are warm and tender. Beloved, the question to you and to me this morning is do we find ourselves in this gospel testimony? Are these words more than a mere argument for us, a way to explain the gospel, a way to prove the correctness of reformed and biblical theology over against other systems of theological and religious thought? Do these words describe your experience as a daughter or son of God? And if you cannot find your experience in these words, no matter how articulately you may be able to explain the gospel to another, no matter how much you may have the gospel and proofs for it at your fingertips, if this is not your experience, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man has not yet appeared to you. And it is time to turn. From darkness and by faith come into the light of God's kindness and love through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. As we go through our sermon this morning, you may find yourself saying at more than one point, I know all of this. This is not telling me anything new, this is affirming what I already know. And that's good. But understand that the gospel should be more exciting and engaging and captivating the longer we hear it and the more we hear it preached. Because the more we hear it, the more the riches of God's kindness and love are being opened to us and the more brilliantly we behold by faith the greatness of our God. Our passage shows that it is not good deeds that save us, but the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The heart and center of our testimony as Christians. And the theme of our text this morning is God saved us. And in your own soul, make that personal. God saved me. That's our theme for the sermon this morning. God saved us. We see, first, that he saved us out of sovereign kindness and love. Secondly, that he saved us through regeneration and renewal. And third, that he saved us unto hope of eternal life. God saved us out of sovereign kindness and love. That's where Paul starts. He doesn't start with justification. That he will get to that in verse 7, being justified by His grace. He doesn't even start where our personal salvation begins. When God gives us regeneration and renewal through the Holy Spirit. Again, He will get to that in verse Verses 5 and 6. But Paul begins by extolling and lifting up the kindness and love of God our Savior toward us. The kindness and love of God our Savior which came to our rescue when we could not help ourselves. God is our Savior. This is how Paul has already talked about God in the book of Titus. In chapter 1, verse 3, he said that God hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. And in chapter 2, verse 11, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul is showing especially how the grace of God is reveals itself in the sanctified life of those who are servants or those who are under authority in the workplace. Paul says in Titus 2, verse 10, that servants are not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And now in chapter 3, verse 4, Paul again says... God is our Savior. God saved us. And this is not surprising if you know the other writings of Paul, the other letters that he wrote to different churches in the New Testament. In Ephesians 2, verse verse 8, God saved us by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And in other places, Paul ascribes to God distinct acts in the drama of salvation. God, he says in Romans 8, verse 32, did not spare his own son, but offered him up freely for us all. Romans 3, verse 25, God set forth his son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. God chose us. God caused us the gospel to be proclaimed. God gives grace. God gives faith. And since God always and only saves his people through Jesus Christ, verse 4 of our text is a fitting prelude to verse 6 where Paul says that God shed the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. God saved us. That means that God rescued us from the greatest evil, which is sin and the condemnation and damnation that our sin deserves. God rescued us from bondage to depravity and Satan and death and hell. And God gave us the greatest blessing his kindness and love this is the motivating power of god's work of salvation his kindness and love toward man have you ever contemplated at length the kindness and love of God toward man, toward you. The kindness and love described in our text is not that of some earthly ruler, one of the principalities and powers or magistrates that Paul mentions in verse 1, who are praised by men because they show a certain liberality or kindness or open-mindedness or tolerance toward men. This is the divine kindness and love of God Himself. The word kindness here means goodness. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 verse 7 where he says that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus, God's kindness, God's goodness. And Paul puts God's goodness first to remind us that before His kindness appeared to us, we were His enemies. Until He came to us in mercy, we were at war with Him. And we deserved only that God should be at war with us. But in Romans 5, verse 8, Paul says, In this, God commends his goodness toward us, in that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. God's kindness. And secondly, Paul says, God's love toward man. If you've heard the word philanthropy, you've heard the word that Paul uses here philanthropy of God, our Savior, appeared. But what this means here is not a feeling or a weak attempt on God's part to help the way that we might want to help someone in need but not be able to. But this is the outpouring of God's love upon His people, as John 3.16 describes it, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The word love here is not the word that you may have heard is used many times in the New Testament. The word agape that refers to God's love as an act of His will As although it is that, but the word that is used here emphasizes the the kindliness, the friendliness, the warmth, the compassion of God's love for us. It portrays God as one who draws near to us in warm friendship and fellowship a God who condescends to make a covenant with us, a relationship of friendship, and to draw us into his embrace and bring us close to his heart. The kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. It appeared. The word appeared means that it came through the darkness of our depravity, the darkness of our misery, the darkness of our night where there was no hope and there was no warmth and there was no light and love. God's kindness and love appeared like the breaking forth of the sun through the clouds and like the rising of the sun on a new day out of the dar- dispelling the darkness of the night. And we may ask, when did that appear? When did the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appear? And we could all answer, it appeared when Jesus came. When Jesus, the Son of God, appeared on earth in our flesh as He walked and talked and preached and did miracles on earth for 33 and a half years, as He died on the cross to save us from our sins, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And that is true. And that is in the background of what Paul says here. But when he says that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, he's speaking here of when it appears to us in the gospel when God sets forth and reveals Himself in a special way to His elect people through the preaching of the good news of salvation. Think about it in terms of Paul's own experience. When Jesus Christ appeared on earth, the Apostle Paul knew nothing of God's kindness and love. He was not a believer. He was busy contradicting the claims of Christ. And after Christ arose, Paul busied himself in persecuting those who claimed to be followers of Jesus. He remained blinded by unbelief and worked to snuff out the truth of Christ. But then as he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians there, the kindness and love of God his Savior appeared to him in a dramatic way. When Christ appeared to him in glory and threw him down to the ground and asked him why he was persecuting him, the Lord Jesus Christ, through persecuting his church, took hold of him, converted him, and made him a preacher of the gospel and an apostle to the Gentiles. And all of us can say that to a greater or lesser extent. Maybe there's not a time where you walked consistently and in, in, in and unconvertedly in sin, where, where you, like the Apostle Paul, were in the darkness of sin and unbelief for, for many years until God in a dramatic way appeared to you in His kindness and love. But all of us know that God saved us. All of us know that the testimony of verse 3 is true of us by nature. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And all of us know that we are here today because the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared to us and has kept us. now, remember the broader context that Paul is writing in. This is not an abstract gospel testimony. It's not an abstract argument for the truth of the Christian faith. But Paul is reminding the Christians on Crete of their calling, which he gives in verse 2, to be good neighbors by showing all meekness unto all men. And now to make us all the more ready to help others who are not as yet saved and prevent us from ever saying they do not deserve our help, Paul stresses the fact that we, on our part, did not deserve our salvation either. And he does this first by emphasizing that we are saved not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to God's Mercy. We're not saved by works. Works of righteousness, which we have done. Righteousness, as God demands it, is giving complete obedience to His law. And completely and in every part, framing our life. So that we do and think and speak only that which God commands perfectly without any error, without the slightest deviation from His Word. God demands perfection, and none of us have ever yielded one work of perfection. Therefore, it can only be by God's mercy that we are saved. God's mercy is his pity to those who are in need or in misery. It is also his desire to save those who are miserable and the power by which he does save them. And the essence of mercy, as Paul writes of it here, is warm Affection, a fatherly tenderness toward those who are helpless. It is the kind of warm affection that springs from God's goodness and moves Him with warm friendship to cause His kindness and love to appear to His people. And notice our text says that God saved us not by or through his mercy, although that's true. But our text says that we are saved according to God's mercy. There is a wideness to God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. God's mercy is the measuring tape that determines the wideness of our salvation. We are saved by, God's, by God from beginning to end, from eternity to eternity, from the point in eternity past when He chose us to be His children unto everlasting life where we will know his mercy and his warm affection and his kindness and his love toward us in heavenly bliss forever. We are saved according to his mercy. And Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 3, verses 17 through 19, as he prays for the church at Ephesus, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's talking here about the sovereign character of God's mercy. And that is what has saved us. Not our good deeds, not our works of righteousness, but God in His kindness and love and mercy. The means that God uses in saving us is brought out in verses 5 and 6. God saves us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul says three things about the means or the way in which God brings his kindness and love toward us and his mercy into our conscious experience. He does it through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. There's three things here. The washing, regeneration, and renewing. Washing, of course, is to be made clean. It's talking about our salvation from the point of view of us being polluted by nature, of us being defiled and filthy and unclean and and having nothing but But trash and being nothing but a stink in God's nose, so that we are cursed before and apart from His mercy would be cast off and disdained. God washes us, and that washing is not a washing with mere water, but it is a picture that we get when we wash our dirty hands or our dirty bodies with water, and they are clean. God washes us with a spiritual washing, a washing of our souls, a washing that Paul here calls regeneration. Literally, another genesis. That's what this word means. The washing of another genesis, another birth. God gives us another birth. Not a second birth out of our mother's wombs, but a birth from above. A birth that is from heaven. A life that is new. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We come into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. If we are to spend eternity with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we must be born again. And Paul says that's what God does when He washes us. He puts it this way in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. God who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened, same word as our text, quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And third, Paul says this washing is a renewal. It is a washing of regeneration. It is a washing that gives us the new birth, the birth from above, and at the same time it renews us. So that we are new creations. So that we are made new people. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The Apostle John puts it this way in John chapter 3. The darkness is past and the true light now shines the washing of regeneration and renewal that God gives us is a washing that can never be reversed it is a renewal that can never be that can never return to the old way things were we are living now in the new life that God has given us. And that life can never die. This is the means through which God saves us. And it is all the work, Paul says at the end of verse 5, of God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who washes us with regeneration and renewal. He is the giver of life. And it is His peculiar work to make God's people holy. He washes us with regeneration. He washes us with the renewed life. And He washes us completely and He washes us irreversibly. He regenerates us, and He renews us. And another word for that renewing is sanctification. The process of sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in working in us so that we live unto God. He renews us in the image of God. He enables us to perform works that are according to God's word. But the Holy Spirit does not act alone. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, is shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Beloved, Love Jesus Christ, your Savior. His kindness and love is the same as God's. And when He appeared, the kindness and love of God toward you and me took personal form. When He came to earth, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward us became revealed in a way that it had never been revealed in history up to that point. And as Jesus Christ has come to you and has called you by His Gospel, you must begin at Him when you are thinking about your salvation. He is the one who washed you by His blood. He is the one who obtained righteousness for you by His perfect obedience. He is the one who overcame the darkness of depravity that is in you. He is the one who overcame your misery. He is the one who overcame death for you. He is the one who rose from the grave For you. He is the one who now is in heaven as your advocate. Through his priestly work and prayers, Jesus Christ obtained for you the gift of the Holy Spirit, who in due time was poured upon you and me to wash us with regeneration and to renew us unto God. Notice how Paul brings out here, not in a a dogmatic way, but in, in, in a wonderful way, how God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together to save us. Work together to renew us. Work together to preserve us. Work together to show kindness and love to us. And God does not bestow his gifts stingily. He is not a tightwad. But Paul says God shed the Holy Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ abundantly. When your depravity raises its ugly head, when the besetting sins that you have faced over and over again in life appear again to trouble you, when the memory of sins that are past and that are forgiven, but that are still haunting, the sins of youth rise up to trouble you, Remember this. God shed His kindness and love abundantly upon you through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ. Maybe you will look at yourself in comparison to another member of the church and you will say, I I seem only to have received a drop of God's grace in comparison with with so-and-so. Beloved, no one has received so small a measure of the Spirit through Jesus Christ that you cannot be accounted rich because the smallest drop of the Spirit is an abundance that will never be exhausted. No matter how small the portion given us seems, it is never dried up. We have been dealt with richly by our God. And as we have dealt with been dealt with richly we have no reason to fall short in our calling to show an abundance of godly conduct and gentleness toward others. When the calling to be a faithful husband and father is heavy. When the calling to be a gracious wife and loving mother becomes burdensome. When the weaknesses, children and young people, of your parents would tempt you to disobey them or to become unsubmissive to their authority. When the nuisances of your neighbors in the community whether next door, someone you work with, or people who cross your path regularly, when their nuisances accumulate to become to, to critical mass, and it's going to take only one small thing for you to blow up at them. This is what you and I need to come back to. The kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Not by anything in ourselves that makes us different from anyone else. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration. through renewing of the Holy Spirit so that our will and ability are changed through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul says that God has saved us for something. He hasn't just saved us but he has saved us unto hope of eternal life. He has saved us for eternity. He has saved us forever. He says that our, salva- our, our hope is grounded on our justification. Verse 7, being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And you are well aware that justification is one of the preeminent gifts of God's grace. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ our Savior in His perfect life and perfectly obedient death imputed or accounted to us. And it is our sins, our depravity, all of the things we are guilty of that are mentioned in verse 3, accounted to Jesus Christ so that we appear righteous before God and are given the gift of salvation and eternal life that we did not deserve. And Jesus is accounted guilty in our place and carried the punishment and death and condemnation that we did deserve. That's justification. And that is what Paul says is the basis for our hope. We have we, And all of God's people who have been justified by His grace have a right to life. Our former state has ended and the new beginning has dawned. We are made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are heirs of heaven. We have an inheritance that is greater than our ability to comprehend, that our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard. We have that now. And one day we will enter into it and we will enjoy it forever. A life with God that cannot die. Beloved, these are the good and beneficial things, the Apostle says. These things are good and profitable unto men, the end of verse 8. Don't bother yourself with questions that are foolish, with genealogies and contentions, with little spats on Facebook and social media, with people who disagree with you about politics or other earthly things. These are the good and profitable things to consider, to talk about, to meditate upon, to speak with of others. Because they are eternal. So, beloved, is this your testimony Where will your joy and peace come from when the sins of your old nature still trouble you, when the responsibilities and burdens and unique trials and daily grind of life threaten to steal your joy? What will you give thought to this week? when you're at your computer, when you're on your phone, when you're out with friends, when you're considering where to go on a particular night. These things, the kindness and love of God our Savior has appeared to men, to me, through Jesus Christ, Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we know that we are far from where we should be, and so we need the reminders that Thy Word gives us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray for these things that Thy Word says are good and profitable, that we've been reminded of this morning, to take root in our hearts. We pray that the Spirit may use them to continue His work of renewal in our life in this week so that we hate that which is evil, so that we flee from that which is wrong, so that we despise our own sins and turn in love to Thee. Follow Thy calling with purpose. Pursue our Work in hope. Live with one another in meekness and peace and love because thy kindness and love has appeared to us. Help our unbelief. Forgive our sins. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.